podcast one production. Hi, I'm Christopher Pine, and welcome to Pine Time. For years, I've been on the receiving end of a barrage of questions, some would say abuse, from the media and other politicians. But I've tried to keep it together, and hopefully I've had a successful career in politics. But now I'm out of the game, and I'm risking it all to step out of my comfort zone and embrace a new world of media, to turn the tables on my guests so you can hear for the first time stories that you've never heard before as they succumb to what some people are kindly describing as the Pine Effect. So listen now as I talk with famous media commentator Annabelle Crabb. Annabelle Crabb is a writer, a serious journalist, a cook, a mother, a wife, a friend. Not a wife, actually. I'm not married. You're a partner. Yeah. That's nice. It is Thank nice. Thank you for correcting me. Well, I just wondered, and you know, perhaps you'd missed that and were feeling annoyed that you era? weren't invited to the wedding. <laughs> it is a modern era. So I should be careful. In fact, as Barry Cassidy said, there are no rules. Well, and, and also... Of course, you've just proven that. If you ever find yourself being interviewed by a person whom you've interviewed many times in your career, <laughs> you should take every opportunity to tip them over. So we're anyway, very Continue lucky. with your introduction of so me. Thank I you. think I yes. interrupted you. So Annabelle Crabb is a broadcaster and a writer and is very famous and um, has teased me mercilessly for many years and we met at university. Yes, we did. And um, I don't actually remember meeting you at university because, of course, I was a bit of a big deal. <laughs> And you were just starting out. and But you remember oh, me, don't you? Cause, I do. So you, did you have a crush on me in those days? Or should I say these days? Uh, look, I, I remember you being one of those university students who was never at lectures. I mean, you were just always off. Unless I was know, speaking. Using available photocopiers to run off liberal campaign material for student elections and generally just... You know, wearing. Did you wear a suit to university? I I sort of remember you as being possibly a person who might have worn a suit to university. Erica Betts wore a suit to university. I never wore a suit to university. Mm, Would have been more of a sort of a a chinos with a sort of blue and white stripy shirt. Don't forget it was the eighties. Something from Demacius. So I had some seersucker white pants that were um, (laughs) puffy in the thighs and. And came in at the ankles. Is that what? You mean like hammer pants? Hammer time? Happy <laughs> no, pants? No. Happy pants. No, not happy pants because they were made from uh, parachute material. Now, these were seersucker. I see. From David Jones. Uh-huh. And I had those red and white um, basketball shoes that people wear that I used to wear with those. And I had my usual sort of wow. Duran Duran black and white striped shirt and a lemon or orange or red jumper thrown over uh, my shoulders. Oh, yes, and knotted with the arms at the front. Knotted with the arms at the front because it was the 80s. Wow, a mm. pullover. A pullover. That is, my, that is not my, that, that's not my recollection, but I think it's possible that I've formed an image of you at university that I occasionally you, pass off as a factual recollection, which is in fact not true at all. Completely made up. I think, no, I, I met you through uh, university debating. So that's I used right. to do university debating mm. invol- like involving a f- few people who were quite a bit older than me, including you. Exactly, quite a bit older than you, but uh, that hasn't answered the question, of course, the one that everybody wants to know. <laughs> do I have a crush on you? Which is, did you or do you have a crush on me? Look, I wouldn't have said then and I won't say now. <laughs> Fair enough. Now, you have been um, very successful at ritually humiliating me over the last sort of 30 years, but particularly getting me to do things 
that I don't want to do. You got me to do the kitchen cabinet. Yes, you were very whiny about that. <laughs> With Amanda Vance, don't thank you. And then the house, do you remember the house? I let you into I the do. inner sanctum of how I ran the house as the leader of the house and you did the whole yes. of the parliament That's series. Right. Yes. And you actually promised me that I'd be in every show and I was in four out of the six. So epically available for interview, were you? <laughs> <laughs> that Members of the Cabinet at the time, I think, started calling it the project Pine TV. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought that was great fun. And then you did the second one, the second kitchen cabinet with me and Anthony Albanese. Yes, I did. Which was and good fun. And the dumpling parlour. The dumpling parlour at China Plate. And then more importantly, though, was the more humiliating <laughs> occasions, the fringe shows, the two fringe shows that you've so far got me to do, much against my better judgement. Uh, look, I think, you know, you are an easy target because your insatiable demand for publicity and exposure will win out against almost any instinct of prudence Self-preservation. that you also harbour. It's just incredibly easy. And I remember when I first had the idea for Kitchen Cabinet and I had a few people that I thought would be fun. And actually I thought, I asked you if you would be prepared to be involved in this project and you said that'd be great. And then when it finally got off the ground, you immediately hit the reverse thrusters of anxiety <laughs> and you started lobbying these sort of um, impossible caveats like, well, you can't come to my house. You won't be you won't be in my house. You can't come to my house. I said, well, we need to come to your house. In the end, we decided to do it with Amanda and have it at her house, which from my perspective was terrific because she's very mean to you and that makes good television. <laughs> she is. <laughs> and then two days before she we were is very mean flying with book tickets, crew and everything, you rang me and you said, I can't go through with this. Oh. This is going to be a disaster. It'll be humiliating. I don't want to drink wine on camera either. I don't want to look like an elite. And you felt that it would be a disaster and that you'd become a laughing stock. And you were also very worried that Amanda would imbibe some red wine and then be incredibly cruel to you, um, which is, of course, exactly what happened. Uh, White and wine, though, I it think. was so great. Uh, but do you remember, remember I had to ring you was... up and said, um, after we'd done the taping, mm. I rang you and said, look, everything that happened after about 4 or 5 p.m. cannot be used because by yes. that stage, Amanda... She'd been pouring. She'd been pouring mm. and I'd been extremely abstemious, but, you know... Oh, I wouldn't... Yeah. Well, I might have maybe. had one or two glasses of wine. Mm. I think Amanda, she would not be embarrassed to say she might have had more than one or two by late in the afternoon. Well, by the end of the day, she was clapping loudly and <laughs> commanding that you race down to the carport to fetch her specially cut CD recording of the alternative Australian anthem That's right. that she'd had some tenor of her acquaintance she record. She loves a project. So you ran down, very obediently I must say, to fetch this CD from her car and then the momentum was lost because then we took about 20 minutes working out how to get it into the sound system and how to make it work. So there was an uninterrupted shot basically of Amanda kind of hunched over this CD player, and then when she finally got it to work, it was turned up so loud that I think we actually blew our sound equipment, mm. and at that point you turned around and said, well, this is excellent television, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and as you were, as I was leaving, what did I say as I was leaving when I you said, said... see, that wasn't so bad, was it? And you said, career ending, <laughs> and you left. But it wasn't, was it? Because no, it actually... Wasn't. 
it was the first episode in the end that we put to air and it lots was. of people watched it and lots of people liked it. And then I remember you phoned me the next day because you'd been in Hobart you said it was for some brilliant. reason. And somebody I had come up brilliant. to you. Well, someone had come up to you in the airport in Hobart, I think it was, and said you phoned me excitedly to let me know this detail and said, oh, Christopher Pine, do you know what? I always used to think you were a complete twat. No, I like you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I get a lot of that. <laughs> <laughs> and is that a, I mean, you're a glass half full dude, I aren't you, really? I am a glass really? half so, full person. So you think, well, that's good, isn't it? That's, yes, I thought, well, that's an improvement. It's, it's progress. <laughs> a lot of people watched that show and then we did the second one. My favourite kitchen cabinet scene, though, was you and Nigel Scullion in the yes, tinny. Yes. When tried he pulled up me. his crab pot. Yes. And he had about six or seven crabs in there yeah. right, scurrying about. Yeah. And, you, which he was going to cook, yeah. and you said, aren't these protected? And Nigel said, not when, not when they're in my pot, they're not. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, God, like he's the Minister for Indigenous I Affairs. I mean, and he's, he's going to get into a lot of trouble. But he didn't, of course, because he's from the Northern Territory. Yeah. So everyone just thought, oh, well, that's anything. Nigel. That's well, Nigel. He, he shot two magpie geese before we arrived. Is that allowed? To- we had to check, and they were they were in season. You were allowed to shoot them at this point. Right. So, but I've he never was... shot anything in my life. Haven't you? No, I've shot rats. Really? Yeah. What were their guns and things? Yeah. Yeah. No, I've never shot a rat. I've never shot anything. I've caught plenty of rats in traps. You know, as a minister for defence, the first thing he I ever fired was a cannon from a tank. Now we're talking. Exactly. Yeah. So when people Did... used to say to me, "Have you ever fired, you know, one of these minister?" I'd say, oh, "No, I haven't." But I, I have fired a cannon from one of our exactly. Abrams tanks. And did you have it bronzed and preserved on your desk the way Bronwyn Bishop did? I always remember well, her. interestingly enough, I fired the cannons from the... No, um, no, cannon is plural of cannon. Thank you. I You're fired welcome. the cannon from the combat reconnaissance vehicle offerings of Rheinmetall and BAE and they retrieved the shells yeah. and um, polished them up ah. and they had them mounted and I popped them on my wall of my office. I think they do that with all the ministers, actually, because Bronnie had a lot of them in her office. I thought I was special. No, I think possibly not. But the thing with Bronwyn was that she was the minister (laughs) for uh, defence procurement or whatever. She was. And then she kept all of the accoutrement of that office when she moved to her next office, which was aged care. So all these aged care (laughs) people would come in and there were just guns and like derringers in cases and pictures of her being held aloft by marines and stuff. It was well, she Confusing. did. She was, as she proudly used to say, she was the first minister to go down on a submarine. Really? Yes. When she was, she answered that question in Question Time one day. <laughs> Bless her. Which rather ranked with the minister for sport at the time, who said that there's nothing she liked more than seeing a couple of girls being punched around the ring, which was what? <laughs> which was an answer to a question about women's boxing. Oh. <laughs> which startled a lot of the front bench. It must be said. What year was this? I don't remember this amusing exchange. This was early in the Howard era. I'm surprised you could hear from that far up the back. <laughs> <laughs> they have microphones, yeah. fortunately. It's not the House of Commons. Now, we've, we started talking about the university. We've got the, off the subject of me a little bit, we, haven't we? We were supposed to be talking about the University of Adelaide. Yes. Because we're dealing with this in a chronological order. We're now we up to 1984. God, it's going well, isn't it? <laughs> And we got somewhat distracted. But there is a phenomenon from our period at university, which we should double back to, which okay. is why so many to people... To which we should double back. To which we should double back. Because you must never finish a sentence with two mm. or any, any kind preposition. of preposition. Mm. Oh, <gasps> snap. Fantastic. Um, 
because no one cares about the English language anymore. But let's not get distracted on that because we're about to go off on another tangent. I know. I'm you almost, ready to go. But you yeah. almost pushed me off the path. But in It's our, tricky interviewing people, isn't it? Well, it is actually. The um, <laughs> people from our university era, Jay Weatherall, Penny Wong, Mark Butler, Andrew Southcott, me... Natasha Stott Despoyer, Sarah Hansen Young, um, and then the media, David Penbethy, Nick Xenophon, Annabelle Crabb, Sam Maiden, Phil Curry. Why were there, do, do you have a reason why you think there were so many people from our era in the 80s and 90s who ended up doing politics, public affairs, journalism? Because it doesn't seem to be in this current generation, I don't does it? know. I really don't know. And I think I always just thought it was normal. But looking back, I think it probably wasn't. There was this weird grouping. We were all sort of super friends, but it just was this sort of cohort, I suppose. And I've, I've no idea why. I mean, one one explanation might be, I mean, the first year that I had at university was the first year of HEX. So, is it possible that that student cohort was politicised one way or the other because of a big political change that happened to university Maybe. students at that well, time? Well, the Hawke government I mean, introduced the administrative fee. Yes, I know. Do you remember? And I yeah. campaigned against it. Yeah. I gave those. I used to go into rallies shouting with my shade of Did you campaign against Hex? in the air. Hmm? Did you campaign against Hex? Yes. Yeah. So, so did Joe Hockey, remember? <laughs> I was a student politician, so there go my people. I have to follow them. Sure. Which kind of worked for what me. Was your, what was your office? I mean, I'm sure I that you are penetratingly brilliant at it. I can't remember which it was. <laughs> Thank you. I was That's the okay. vice president of the Students Association. I was a member of the union board for three years, a member of the student council for three years, mm. obviously president when of the When you say the vice president, you mean mm. a vice president. I was the finance vice president. Right. Mm. There was an education vice yeah. president. And there was a, you know, fun and games vice president. No, there wasn't. Yeah. No, no. lots of vice presidents. No, there weren't actually. <laughs> <laughs> there were two vice presidents when I was there. Okay. And a president. That's more than one. So but when you say you. the, thank you. it's not quite accurate, is it? You were a vice president. I was one of two as opposed to one of six or seven, which is nice of you to point out. Be <laughs> it help. Thank you. You're obviously a South Australian, which I am. a lot of people wouldn't know, and from two wells. Well, I'm from Lower Light, really, but Lower Light. Um, I say two worlds because I just people will know that as the big smoke. So and South Australia that. produces a lot of people like us, doesn't it? People who people like us. Well, people who you know, are, I mean, lots of people in arts, the theatre, media. I mean, politics. Whenever you travel around the world, you run into people who are doing interesting things, and then you'll say they'll say, "Oh, well, you know, I'm from Burnside or Two Wells or." Just those, those two issue areas those kinds mainly. Of places and you think, um, oh, you're from South Australia. Yeah. It amazes me how many South Australians, you know, love South Australia but get jobs around the world or yeah. interstate. Um, doesn't mean they're less South Australian. Do you? I mean, you live in Sydney now. I do, yep. And but you come back to Adelaide quite a lot. Yeah, all the time. Um, mm. Well, look, it's a bit of a renaissance South city, I think, is. is what I'm getting at. South Australia is an awesome place to grow mm. up, and I think it does prepare you for a great interest in life and curiosity. I mean, it doesn't, it sounds sort of trivial to say, oh, well, we've got, you know, this terrific tradition of theatre and mm. so on. But I mean, really, I think a lot of the experiences that I had when I was a kid that made me think more, read more, were associated with um, the art scene in South Australia. And I, I lived an hour's drive out of town, so it wasn't like I could just nip off to the theatre, but, you know, my parents made an effort to 
get us into the city to see things and and the festival is a great way of encouraging people to come and see things. And some of the things that I remember most warmly from my youth are um, things that I saw at the festival or that I participated in as part of my public school um, at primary school in the festival. And that was really, particularly for a kid growing up in the country, very, very important. And I don't think people outside South Australia realise, actually, that not having convicts is not the most important defining characteristic of South Australia. (laughs) Does anyone think it is? No, but, right. you know, it's one of the things people say about South Australia, well, you know, we didn't have any convicts. But actually, it was more importantly the fact that we were a planned colony without a state religion and the first go- first colony to have self-government. And the fact that we had no state religion didn't mean that we therefore were, you know, um, all free and easy. It actually meant there are a lot and lot of different kinds of religions. Yep. And, Absolutely. and cults, well, cults is probably the wrong description. But sure, you call them cults. I call them compelling personal movements. As a Catholic, movements, I yeah. call them cults. But smaller, <laughs> smaller religious groups that were leaving Europe to escape from the persecution in many respects, like the Silesian <laughs> group that came, some of the Lutherans and others. Mm-hmm. And that meant that there was a very, quite a divergence of people, which made them very much more tolerant, I think, Sure, that plurality has always been a big thing in mm. South Australia. You know, I mean, we were, of course, the first state to give women the vote. Exactly. 1894, you... was it? 1894? Uh, was it 94? Um, or was the New Zealanders in 94? It might have been us in 1896, I think. I can't, it was in the 1890s, I can't mm. remember exactly which year, but did you know, and this is actually outlined in Judith Brett's book. The Deacon uh, book. No, no, mm. the, her newest one, which is called From Compulsory Voting to Democracy Sausage, is the history mm. of voting in Australia. And it is more Gripping. interesting and intriguing than it sounds. But I did not know until I read that book that women getting the vote in South Australia was actually a parliamentary tactical blunder. Did you know that? No, I didn't. Well, because there was legislation before the South Australian Parliament that for women being able to stand for parliament was a mistake. Was a mistake. Oh, wow. So the, we were the um, first extending place suff- in the world that allowed right, women to stand for exactly. parliament. So um, extending suffrage to women was before the parliament. And although the premier of the day was in favour, there was a kind of conservative rump who were very opposed, right? And so, um, but it looked like the yes vote was getting the numbers. And so as a last-ditch tactic, which had in fact been used successfully in New Zealand earlier, this conservative bunch of opponents said, okay, fine, let's vote it through, but we're also going to amend the legislation to allow women to run Stand. for parliament. And they because, thought they would get defeated. Because they thought, ha-ha, never exploding cigar. <laughs> Everyone will think that's too that. weird. And, and then it did. went through. Wow. So it was the most incredible tactical own goal. And as a result, South Australia was the first place where women could stand for parliament. It took the Brits till 1921, I think. Yeah, and um, of course, no one successfully, no woman successfully stood for parliament in South Australia. Um, and the first woman to stand for parliament successfully was in Western Australia. That was Edith Cowan in 1921. Mm. And she stood for the seat represented by Thomas Draper, who was the Attorney General at the time, who had steered you got a through... You a lot of detail. I have, who had steered through the legislation allowing women to stand for Parliament and immediately, as, immediately he succeeded, defeated. this woman ran against him and won. Knocked him off. Brilliant. Mm. Anyway. Well, that happens. Politics sorry to like hijack that. your interview. No, not at all. It's very interesting because, it, I mean, it's... It leads into a nice segue. Well, that's convenient. Which is you as a trailblazer for women. Oh. Because I think you have been a trailblazer for women without being too sort of, you know, effusive in my praise. Right. But 
I think you've defined your career in media in a way that a lot of people haven't. I mean, mm. you have done things that no one else has thought that to no do. No other idiot would do. <laughs> no, you've done things nobody else would think to do. And I think uh, the kitchen cabinet's a really good example. I mean, it was your idea, by the way, to do the parliament. I mean, yes. most most journalists, most media people spend a lot of their life dissing the parliamentarians yeah. and the parliament and saying, you know, it's the worst parliament and it's the worst political environment we've ever been in. But if you go back and read the Hansards in the 1930s or the early 1900s, which I've had the pleasure of doing on occasion, it's exactly the same speech as being given about you know, oh, how, worse. how hard, you know, yeah. how we come to this terrible point. And mm. I think when Sir Frederick Holder dropped dead in the chamber, his last <laughs> that words... was a low point. <laughs> it was a low point. His last words were terrible, terrible. <laughs> about the debate that was going on in 1903. And he, Whoa, was, a, he was, was a South Australian, by the way, Sir Frederick Holder. He dropped dead in the chamber, which was really unfortunate. But, and I, you know, his family... You haven't lost one yet. <laughs> no, no, well, I'm, I'm out now. Yeah. But the, the good thing about what you've done is you've said, well, sure, everyone wants to criticise the politicians all the time and say that they're dreadful. It's kind of an old story. Why don't we see if there's another side to that story? And the House was fascinating for, I think, a lot of people because they thought, right, that's what they do and that's yeah. that's how it works. And Kitchen Cabinet, you sort of took out, you decided to yourself, look, there's a side to politicians that nobody else sees, which is when you go out to dinner with them in Canberra, they can be quite engaging, surprisingly. Mm-hmm. And the Kitchen Cabinet was basically to say, look, there's another side to politicians that nobody's ever seen. It was a runaway success, yeah, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. So there's that, there's the house and there's writing about politicians in an amusing way, whether it's in your columns or um, when you used to got started really in national politics, writing those sort of gossipy columns. Mm. And is that have you, have you deliberately set out to do that because you think it's a new angle? I mean, it has been trailblazing. Well, I think that we have this explosion in media, right? More space to run things and more uh, platforms on which to communicate. And I think... It's been destructive in some ways of our national policy because it's there's thousands of voices all shouting at once. But it's also an opportunity, which is to explain things in a different way and to open up the entry points that people have to being interested in politics and engaging in the decision-making that's so significant for all of our lives. And so I've always thought that you know, there's a hardcore in Australia of people who are interested in politics and follow it and swear at the radio and read every page of the Financial Review or whatever. But it's not a very big proportion because most other people are just, you know, getting along with their lives and they engage with politics when they absolutely have to, when it's um, election time. But I think there are ways of building opportunities for people to get involved in the political process or get interested in it. And one of them with the house was, you know, well, let's have a look at what this building does. Let's show people the 90% of the building that members of the public can't go into. Let's take some cameras in there, which was sort of hard to do. And Kitchen Cabinet was about, well, you know, you've seen this person shouting on the television. What are they doing in politics? Why are they there? What motivates them? What What is it in their lives that happened to them that made them choose this as a career and, and why have they succeeded or why have they failed? And I just think, I mean, it's in no way the most important kind of political journalism that happens, but I think it's, um, for some people, uh, a way of opening a little door into the political process that they might not otherwise have gone through. Yeah, I think so too.
prefer that medium of television or do you love the, the for fringe shows and the stage and, and the, oh, the immediacy of the no, audience? I, like, I mean, media is my thing, really. Right. And I suppose that over the course of what I've done in my media career, I'm very comfortable in front of an audience of people. So I don't mind changing up the format if that's an available option. I don't know. I just I like meeting people and I like getting about and I like doing a different thing every day. I think I would absolutely die if I had a job that where I had to do the same thing every day. Um, it's nice to have subjects who are prepared to put up with you putting photographs of themselves up as children, which oh, their no. wives are very sweetly well, given to you. Your wife gave me those photos. And describing me as looking like the Fritzl family. Really? Oh, gosh. Do you remember sorry that? that? No, I don't. I was... That was at the Fringe Show. I was in a show. performative haze, sorry. <laughs> performative <laughs> haze. My wife very sweetly gave you those photographs of my childhood, which She's was an excellent nice. woman. And she's an excellent woman. I interviewed her for my book, The Wife Drought. You did? Hmm. I had to go through and cut out half the things she said. You were a bit controlling. But, she, <laughs> but there was quite a lot of interesting stuff left. Yes, no, it was good. It was good. Now, favourite thing back in time for dinner? Favourite show? Oh, that I've made? Mm. I think my favourite... Oh, I don't know. It's tough. I think I think the house is probably the most useful one. Right. Actually, just because when we started <laughs> Do you making remember it, when we taped Trent Zimmerman and I walking down by the lake. Yes. <laughs> Trent was terribly the concerned. The and shorts brigade. He was terribly concerned that his stomach would be obvious in the polo shirt that he was wearing. Right. But he was torn because as a backbencher he wanted to be on the television. Right. But Could I he think, worn a muumu or something? I think I mean, we, he's quite trim, isn't he? I think. Well, he is trim, but he was still he was concerned. But I think you had you ended up with a happy balance. You see what's happened here? You've asked me a question, I've mm. answered it, and no, then you've responded with an anecdote. I uh, know. I'm sorry. Well, that's my style. You see, <laughs> that's my brilliant interviewing style, which disarms my guest. <laughs> Do you feel I'm disarmed? I'm completely defenceless. Yeah, I'm <laughs> totally defenceless. <laughs> Favourite I, I show? Like, I, hmm. like to, I like to make programs or write things that make people look at something they think they know in a different way and that entertains them and doesn't feel like a chore when they're reading it. And I think what I liked about Back in Time for Dinner was that it taught you about the history of Australia and our migratory movements and how we receive um, waves of newcomers and how we assimilate with each other, but through a medium that was engaging and had this marvellous family involved. And people really watched that show in great numbers. Um, what was that but family's a, name again? The Carbone. The Ferrones. The Ferrones, You'd say right. Ferrones. Ferrone. Yeah. Ferrone. But they say Ferrone. They do. Yeah. And so if I, th- I think if I try and do... The, the thing that's in common with all of the projects that I do is I'm drawn to things that convey information in an entertaining way. But that's a classic example of you back in time for dinner because my children wanted to watch that show, mm. which surprised me. Your children me. are huge fans of mine, though. But that's because you were the person doing the show. And I'm sure there are a lot of people who, when they look through the t- TV guide... <laughs> still produce TV do they still guys. do that? I don't know. I think children just watch it because guys. the odds of me being mean to you on camera <laughs> were just unbackable. <laughs> unbackable. But they watched it because they thought Annabelle, if she's doing something, it'll be fun, which kind of proves that you are, that you've become bigger than just an ABC media person, That's journalist, writer. you keep writer. coming back for more punishment. Exactly. And uh, we did the goggle box together. Remember the goggle box? We did do the goggle box. I'm not sure if you put the... 
definite article uh, in front of What do you of call it? Goggle, goggle box. box. Is that right? It's just goggle box. It's oh. like saying the YouTube. Well, I would say the YouTube, you see, because to me the YouTube is a subject. Right. Okay. But, <laughs> but that's because I'm a bit out of touch with reality. Um, well, what was your favourite thing that you did in politics? I mean, what's your favourite? Mm, that's a good question. It's a hard one, isn't it? Because it is. The, the, the one single really de- definite thing which is obvious to everybody and you can touch and feel it is headspace because it, the federal government wasn't into youth mental health. That wasn't really into mental health. It was regarded as a state issue. And I think heads, creating Headspace, the Youth Mental Health Initiative with Pat McGurry was broke the damn wall on that. And ever since then, of course, you know, a lot of governments and politicians have wanted to be associated with mental health. And I think that was quite um, a defining moment. And, of course, the defence industry changes, building the defence industry for the next many, many decades, submarines, ships combat reconnaissance vehicles, surface-to-air missile defence systems, cannons, howitzers, Oh, my God, I've mortars. just incurred a press release now, haven't I? The really... They will How be is it that you're the interviewer term. and I'm the one that's just committed an interviewing bungle, which is, <laughs> ask someone. Because I disarmed you so yeah. cleverly moments ago and now you are flailing. <laughs> I uh, so next big project, what are you doing? Are you writing a book? More cookbooks? So the cooking Actually, part of the show, the cooking part of the Annabelle Crab story... Yeah. Is that just because you love cooking and you thought, yeah. let's turn it into something yeah. that I can if share with people? If you were able to incorporate your personal hobby into your professional life, then do it. I liked that cake like you cooking. brought to our kitchen cabinet. That which was good, was the, wasn't it? The Persian was love the cake. Persian, no, Persian mm. love cake. Mm. Yes, there it was. You go. Very popular cake. Yeah, I, I like cooking a lot. I, I cook every day and I do it instead of yoga. I think I find it very... Instead uh, of yogurt. Yoga. Oh, yoga. Yoga. Yes. I don't like yoga. I don't like there yogurt. Just think yogurt or yoga? I have done... We're talking about yoga? Yeah, yoga. I got chucked out of a yoga class. Really? No, yes, I was too competitive. I know, it's terrible, isn't it? My wife and I did it together, and uh, this is a terrible story. She and I did it together many, many years ago. Was it one of those superheated ones where they heat the the room so that everybody just fights? No. No. And the yoga instructor was a girl called Anne, and she knew me since I was a child. And she said to me one day after a class, um, look, we've had some complaints. <laughs> I said, what? We've had some complaints and, um, you know, do you mind not coming anymore? I said, what? I said, I'm being expelled from the yoga class. <laughs> she said, Are you for real? I, yeah, for real. She said, yes, look, I'm sorry, you know. I said, wow, this is unbelievable. So I was talking to Carol on the way home saying, you wouldn't believe what's happened, but Anne Moriarty has thrown me out of the yoga class. Anyway, I ran into Anne Moriarty at her father's funeral, actually. Oh, so, and you, you never returned? No, I never returned. So Anne said to me, who's become Anna, by the way, she changed the name to Anna. Oh, that's confusing. She said, um, actually, it was Carolyn that complained about you. <laughs> I said, What? She said, no, Carolyn said, I can't do it anymore if he's going to be here because he's too competitive. Because apparently I kept saying things like, oh, wow, I climbed the wall better than everybody else does. Or did you see how I held the mirror? Isn't that interesting? I can't picture that at all. (laughs) I held the mirror better than anybody else did. And she thought, I don't want to do this with him anymore. So she got rid of me. It's like that time that she... pushed me out of the yoga class. It's like that time that your wife graduated. She told me about this. She graduated from her university degree and... You said, wonderful, I'll come to the ceremony. And you I was were, the Minister for Education. You were the Minister for Education at the mm. time. so um, There were people protesting and burning my effigies. That's right. And you had this plan to come in disguise. As Cyrano de Bergerac. 
And she <laughs> said, I, I said I think I think unsurprisingly, really, under the circumstances, said no. She didn't let is, me come. This is a thing that's for me and it's not about you. That's right. It's one of those few things in the world, this small, precious thing that I have that's mine. <laughs> that's right. She so, didn't let me come. No. She let the children go. She's got that and yoga now. <laughs> she did. I did said, I know. I said, I know the secret entrance into the Benithan Hall. I said, it's below the tower, the northern tower. And she said, I'm not interested in your crazy stories. I said, I do. I know how to get in there because the AFP had to take me in there to give a speech. She said, that's the whole point. I don't want you to have to be secreted into the building dressed as Cyrano de Bergerac. I said, people won't know me because I'll have a very long nose on. Very surprised to see a person in disguise. You know, she didn't think it was as amusing as I did, and I was not allowed to come. It's true. And she threw me out of the yoga class. This interview of me has been quite revealing about you, hasn't it? <laughs> well, that's true. So tell us more about you. No, I'm good, thanks. No, we I'm want to know good. more about your next project. <laughs> Well, actually, one thing that I am working on and that I should have been working on a bit more, um, but I'm about to redouble my uh, efforts, I am writing a book about politics for children. Oh, yes, I think you, you know, told me that a um, long time ago. Yes, Not a long time ago, it. but if, you know, a few months ago at least. <laughs> well, you know, all, the, all these kids when they're in year six or seven visit Canberra, a lot of them do from around Australia actually, and there really isn't a book that they can read before they go that's targeted at them. And I think that's a problem. I think there are so many great stories and interesting things about our democracy that aren't broadly known. I mean, even the fact that we have compulsory voting and... uh, And full preferential. Well, only 11 countries in the world have compulsory voting that's enforced by a system of fines like we do in Australia. And that's amazing. I think it's actually a big part of why our democracy is still more functional than it is in uh, America, for instance. It's very stable. Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't you wouldn't know it from uh, looking at a few recent events, but we've covered a bit of territory. We have we? covered a we've bit of territory. We've also taken and, turns interviewing each other. Have you noticed that? It's been lovely. It's been lovely. And I thought that would happen. I had a sense that you would try and do that and you succeeded. Anyway, thank you very much, Annabelle Is this, Are we finished? I think so. Okay. Unless you have something else you want to ask me. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for joining us today. It's been a great pleasure. It has. Thank you for having me. Pine Time was presented by me, Christopher Pine. Audio production by Darcy Thompson, produced by Matt Dwyer and the ever-patient executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. Jennifer Goggin.